the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts ridiculous history is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. It is still the spooky season here over Ridiculous History, and uh, we're all big fans of it. But there are other holidays looming on the horizon as well, and we're going to do what corporate America calls getting in front of it in today's episode. I'm Ben. That's our super producer, the one and only Max Williams. And, uh, Noel, your background's changed today. It looks like someone's in the office. Yeah, can you hear that cool drilling? Oh, oh no. It, it sounds like I'm at the dentist. I'm just leaving it in. This is just the real life of a podcaster. And it's funny because things like that don't happen when you're at home. But when you go into the office, all of a sudden there's, like, they're tearing down walls in the office next door. And, and, and you know, do they care about the, our putting out quality content? I think not. But hopefully it'll just be intermittent. But yeah, I do have a different background. It's sort of a foamy, uh, soft, corrugated kind of background uh, because I am, in fact, in one of our studios at uh, at our office mm-hmm. here in Atlanta. Ben, mm-hmm. you mentioned the spooky season, and, you, you're, and I see what you're doing here. You're segueing into looming holidays. I would argue that uh, Thanksgiving is even spookier than Halloween because mm-hmm. the turkey is an abomination, my friend. Yeah. Uh, that is a terrifying creature, and sure. I, I would not want one to come at me. You know how I feel about birds, but turkeys Mm -hmm. in particular, their talons and their weird 
fanned out feathered things and that 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 horrifying waddle gobbler whatever you call yeah. that it just looks like it's the stuff of nightmares my friend the stuff yeah. of nightmares turkeys are tough to cook too you can always reach out to me with advice because i've made those mistakes before when i initially pitched this episode to you guys off air as something we could do this week uh i think my my logic which was a bit of a reach was that yes halloween is spooky but for many people in the u.s and, you know, in other countries with their versions of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner with your extended family is just as much of a horror show or has oh, the potential yeah. to be. So luckily, we thought this was solid enough. And we we learned something with the help of our pal Gabe. Very interesting about Thanksgiving. Uh, it's something that I don't know about, you know, I was not aware of until we started researching this for years, for decades, dude. Thanksgiving was considered a very controversial holiday, not for mm -hmm. not for the reasons that people talk about it now, but because people in the South thought it was a Yankee abolitionist celebration, which what? Yeah, it's just, it really was a cultural thing because, I mean, a lot of the foods that were a big part of it that we still think of today, like pumpkin pie and uh, what was really big in the early days of Thanksgiving, chicken pot pie. Uh, I think it was a Southern thing, but I think it also has roots in, like, you know, the the North as well. They probably call it something different. But I think there was a sense that this was a way of trying to force Northern ideals and cultural kind of touchstones onto the South. And they didn't want to have anything to do with that. They were still feeling pretty raw about that whole Civil War thing. Yeah, yeah. This was back when— the uh, moneyed Southerners probably still referred to it as the recent unpleasantness. Uh, right. There was this campaign in the 1800s to make Thanksgiving a permanent holiday. And oddly enough, it was seen as a move in a culture war by people in the South, kind of the way that you'll hear some folks every year talk about a war on Christmas. Southerners for a time thought Thanksgiving was a war on them. And of course, the first account of Thanksgiving is way older than the Civil War. Uh, there's a letter written about a pilgrim's meal in 1621. This was, we talked about the evolution of Halloween a bit in um, our episode on haunted houses. This holiday also evolved from like a, a supper that you would have traditionally during the harvest season to this Puritan day of thanks to God in colonial New England. And then I think as you go through the 1700s, we see that it evolves increasingly into a holiday that is like the Thanksgiving table is to Thanksgiving as the Christmas tree is to Christmas. Yeah, and it's certainly been gussied up over the years and uh, turned into, you know, more of a symbol um, of togetherness and family and less even like a cultural remembrance or a nod or even like a tacit thank you to the Native Americans who, you know, whose land we, you know, kind of stole or whatever. I think the original Thanksgiving dinner, actually, the main course was just exclusively plague blankets, if I'm not mistaken. It's interesting you mention that because the idea of the smallpox blanket is it's it's often bandied about here, but I read somewhere that there were serious questions about whether it actually worked. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of an early American historian named Elizabeth Fenn over at University of Colorado Boulder. But your point stands, regardless of the smallpox blankets or their efficacy, uh, the 
colonists were not very appreciative of all that the native peoples had done in a very real way to keep them alive in those early days. Uh, and yes, Europeans did take the land. It's true. Um, but, you know, Thanksgiving has endured uh, and I think, you know, sort of morphed into to something a little bit different. But it is kind of one excuse for families, hopefully typically ones that like each other, to get together, gather around a table and, and um, you know, have a day of rest and, and a day to give thanks for, you know, all that life has to offer. Um, but before we talk about, you know, what Thanksgiving has become today— how maybe this sort of, you know, north-south divide was maybe cooled off a little bit. Let's just talk about uh, the first American Thanksgiving, what it actually might have been like, and then how uh, it became, you know, sort of a, a national tradition, uh, even if it wasn't, like, mandatory. Yeah, yeah. Like we said, there was this letter about the Pilgrim's Meal in 1621, and over the 1700s, it became, again, a holiday increasingly centered on the idea of breaking bread with people. As New England became more and more populated by colonists, people who lived there started lighting out west, right, as Mark Twain would say, and they took the all their cultural traditions with them, including this Thanksgiving thing that they did every year, uh, first in New York State and then in the Michigan territories and then in what would become Ohio, people who were expanding into this, uh, into this land, into these regions, decided they would take that harvest feast with them. I do want to point out, just to be very clear, Professor Fenn, who I, who I quoted earlier about the smallpox blankets, she's not saying that people didn't try to do it. It's documented. Europeans did try to do it. Uh, her question is whether it actually worked, which could it's be transmissible in that way, like right, uh, you know, got it, given got the it, got age it. of the infection and so on. Um, but of course, there were other ways, other much more direct ways that colonists were spreading disease to native populations. Thanksgiving as a concept as like a national, hey, you're in the U.S., do this. It's been around since the days of the Continental Congress when they started issuing these directions uh, to celebrate uh, multiple days of thanks in honor of various military victories. And I think it was 1789, George Washington called for a all around the nation, day of thanks, the war's over, we've got a constitution now, go team. Yeah, and all the other, a lot of the other founding fathers got in on that, too, making their own proclamations, which I'm a little confused by. It's sort of like, oh, you think you can make a pop proclamation, Mr. George Washington? Well, I, John Adams, is going to make my own proclamation, and I, James Madison, will do the same. Uh, this seems a little redundant. Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, felt that uh, there were religious connotations that surrounded the event, and he was a big proponent of separation of church and state. So um, he did not make any formal declarations about this day of thanks until 1815. He was almost like he was boycotting a little bit because of the idea of thanks, I only can assume, revolves around faith in some way in his mind. I don't know. I've always thought of Thanksgiving as a pretty secular holiday, uh, more of like a history kind of honoring, a, you know, this kind of rose-colored history thing that maybe never happened the way we think. But I'm interested to, 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 I would be interested in his thought process as to what made it feel like it had religious connotations. Maybe right, the idea well, of prayer? I don't know. Yeah, the, I mean, keep in mind, this is the guy who literally rewrote the Bible and took out all the stuff that might be seen as supernatural in his opinion. 
This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know. I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We know that in the 1840s, Thanksgiving was uh, a big to-do across the Northeast and through the Midwest, but it wasn't like, it, it wasn't quite as uniform or homogenous as it is today. By this point, the like the returning champs of your stereotypical Thanksgiving Day menu had already been established. Uh, roasted turkey, cranberry sauce, potatoes, stuffing, pumpkin pies, etc. Uh, but as you pointed out earlier, Noel, for some reason, chicken pot pie disappeared, which is a shame because chicken pot pie is delicious, especially if you make it from scratch. Oh, God, it's incredible. And I'll tell you, a bit of a sleeper hit um, if you're looking for some decent quality fast food. I highly recommend the KFC chicken pot pie. Yeah. Very flaky crust, nice creamy filling, good real chicken. Um, I'm not getting paid for this. I just am a big fan of the KFC chicken pot pie. Uh, But, yeah, it's weird. Like, they just called it chicken pie, so I'm assuming it would follow the tradition of, like, a mince pie or, like, you know, just more British pies where it's just a flaky crust with filling. And I'm sure it maybe isn't exactly what we know today is chicken pot pie, but probably the closest. That's probably the closest analog that we can think of. Really quickly, you you made me think of something. You mentioned how uh, Thomas Jefferson rewrote the Bible to get rid of some, you know, any offending passages, I guess, that that, uh, that upset his delicate sensibilities. And it reminded me, I just found out, um, we're not super close or anything. We're like internet pals, and she's a very talented musician uh, and uh, songwriter in Athens, Georgia, Erin Lovett. She just came out with her first book, I believe, and it's called The Secret of Chimneys, but not racist. Agatha Christie, but not racist. So she's basically rewritten all these Agatha Christie books and taken out all the uncomfortable racist bits. So, um, well, even Tin Little Indians uh, has problems. Especially 100%. know the original I, I, title. It sounds like she's doing the whole series, or at least a bunch of them. It says it's a highly modernized collection of all your beloved favorites from legendary Mr. Arthur Agatha Christie, but with all the racism and much and as much sexism as we could manage without entirely rewriting every female character, painstakingly redacted by our editors. So, uh, good job, Aaron. Um, I and, give uh, man, thanks give to a, you, Miss Lovett. <laughs> Indeed. There we go. And When we're talking about Thanksgiving, we have to be clear that back in those days, there wasn't an official national fixed day for Thanksgiving where everybody tried to take some time off and make nice with their relatives and loved ones. Instead, the governor of each state every single year would issue this proclamation and really was up to them to determine what day it would be. Most folks did choose a Thursday in late November, sometimes early December. But some people would say, no, nah, let's do it on Saturday. And some people would say, ah, let's let's wait till January or let's just get it out of the way here in September. And this uh, this got to some folks. I mean, can we say Yankee on air? Enough time has passed, right? I think I think I think the statute of limitations for that particular slur has expired. Yankee, 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 uh, Yankee doodle dandy. Wasn't there a sports team called the Yankees? There they still, still, is. still is. Yes. Is that is that is that is that? Soccer? I'm, I'm kidding. I don't know sports. And macaroni, guys. when he sticks a feather in his cap and calls it macaroni in the song, yeah. that means cool. Macaroni it means like he's trying to be like a cool, cool Italian guy, right? It's like a hipster thing. But all this pushback 
was seen as pretty absurd uh, by, you know, some of these, uh, these, these Yankee types. They just didn't understand what the beef was or the, you know, the, the stuffing was. So a group of uh, Northerners um, who were professionals and academics, uh, members of the clergy, for example, um, editors, newspapers, teachers, uh, educators, they banded together and they started uh, with this article in the SeriousEats.com refers to as agitating. Agitator. I love the idea of being an agitator. Agitator. This makes me think of like poking something with a stick. Um, but they decided they were going to single-handedly, you know, or at least as like a, you know, kind of hive mind, make Thanksgiving a uniform national holiday. And of that group, the clear ringleader was a, a spitfire of a woman named Sarah Josepha Hale. She was a widow. She had been uh, widowed in her mid-30s. She had five children that she raised on her own, um, born in New Hampshire, needed, you know, to, to make money. And she decided that she was going to become a writer. Mm-hmm. And she did just that. She wrote the children's poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yep. Heard of that? Mm-hmm. Originally known as Mary's Lamb. Mary's Lamb, yeah, in 1830. <laughs> hugely, hugely iconic poem. And she um, got so famous so quickly that she decided to use her newfound celebrity as a children's author to uh, promote causes that she believed in. Right, yeah, women's issues, uh, other other social movements that were close to her heart. She went on to write a novel or a series of novels. Her first one was Northwood or Life North and South, which was kind of a compare contrast of what she saw as everyday life in the southern U.S. and in New England. And there's an entire chapter that talks about a Thanksgiving celebration on a farm in New Hampshire. And in this, she said that this celebration should be pretty much on the same level as the 4th of July. It should be a national holiday. Mary had a little lamb, as we call it today, a sidebar. Uh, This happens a lot with songs. Like people just take the most memorable lyric of a song or poem, and that becomes the name. Sort of uh, like that poor kid who is described as Honey Boo Boo. She has an actual name. Honey Boo Boo is just a phrase she used. Anyway, that's that's a little quick problem with the media. Here's what happened. This Northwood novel makes Hale a literary superstar. 1837, she becomes the editor of Godey's Ladies Book, which is the most widely distributed magazine in the country at the time. More than 150,000 people are reading every issue. So this is her new platform to galvanize the public towards celebrating a single, national, unified Thanksgiving Day. And she takes every November issue of the magazine and just stuffs the turkey of the thing with all kinds of Thanksgiving stories, poems, recipes. And uh, she also writes a lot of editorials, like her pins on fire, when she keeps telling America, look, everybody, get on the same page, get on the same plate. We're making Thanksgiving happen. It's interesting, right? Like, I don't quite understand where all this zeal comes from. You know, I think maybe because it was a tradition that was brought over to the colonies, you know, and became this kind of tradition. And also I think there was th- th- there was some resentment that the Southerners were looking at it as this kind of like, you know, 
almost propaganda thing that was trying to be forced onto them. And I think it was almost like, hey, hold the phone. This is actually really cool and something that uh, I think is very innocuous ultimately and just about family. And like, why not have a national day uh, where everyone gets to take off and kind of enjoy these particular foods? It, it seems nice and pleasant to me and charming. And that's certainly how she wrote about it. She created this whole almost lore surrounding it. It's almost like, um, you know, those early catalogs. Remember catalog culture, Ben, where you had this image of like what, you know, American life should be that was like sort of sold to you by these advertisers. The idea of like, you know, 2.5 kids and, uh, you know, the Cadillac in the driveway and all that. She was almost doing that for the holiday of Thanksgiving um, and making it like weaving it into the fabric of that, like what, you know, what, what should life as an American be? Right. Codifying practice and through codifying practice, uh, attempting to codify culture, which she inarguably succeeded at. So back to Hale's story here in 1846, she's been doing this Thanksgiving propaganda for some time. She inspires and, and launches a annual letter writing campaign to all the governors in the nation. And in this campaign, she urges them to get on the same page, as I said, get on the same plate about Thanksgiving Day. And she says, look, it needs to be the last Thursday in November. You can actually read her original pitch online, courtesy of our good friends over at Atlas Obscura. So shout out to Sarah Laskow for that one. Her lobbying is very successful, not just in the North, but in the South. People from, ver governors rather, of various places declared their Thanksgiving days officially in 1847. And then in 1850, Texas followed. Uh, in a, just a few years, most governors of southern states have also fallen in line with this. And concurrently, Hale was also lobbying federal officials to create a, a national level day of thanks. Also on, you guessed it, folks, the last Thursday of November, her goal this was so interesting to me, and it, and it seems like a good idea. Her goal was to bring the country together with something that could be seen as sort of free of politics, free of social strife. You know, this, the, you're right. The same way people uh, often celebrate Thanksgiving today, you'll, you'll see some families that say, all right, we're not discussing politics at the table, especially not when, you know, Uncle Jimmy has had a couple of a couple of beers. Uh, so we're just going to get through this day together. She thought this could ease the growing tensions and divisions between the North and South of the U.S. And by 1854, uh, it looked like she was on the path to success. More than 30 states and U.S. territories all had Thanksgiving on the schedule but she just hadn't quite made it a national holiday. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville's. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Just to backtrack real quick and, and uh, for a point of clarification, I've been sort of referring to the Civil War as if it were already, you know, kicked off in earnest. It was really more just the tensions that led to the Civil War and that divide. I mean, they were absolutely palpable. And this was, you could consider all of this like the run-up to the Civil War. Uh, the South strongly rejected anything that even had a whiff of Yankee sentiment because they saw it 
as a condemnation of the Southern way of life, which was like, you know, owning slaves were cool. Um, right. And, it's uh, like a big government thing, right? Because now they're saying, oh, this national group. Uh, That's a good point. They're saying it's just another way for the federal government, for Big Brother, to tread on us, you know, to oppress us, which is weird because eating turkey is a lot of things, but is it an act of oppression? It just feels like a stretch. It feels like yeah, a stretch. It does, it, it does. But but they were using this as a tool. You know right. what I mean? I mean, we, we see this all the time. Like, very innocuous things are glommed onto by an opposition and, uh, you know, elevated to some kind of – to represent something else, right? In fact, the um, professor emeritus of history at the University of Georgia, right near uh, where we are, uh, James C. Cobb, um, he had this to say about it. With the whole prospect of a showdown over the expansion of slavery, there was more and more rhetoric coming out of the South charging that Thanksgiving was pretty much a Yankee abolitionist holiday. And even though, you know, some maybe slightly more moderate governors, I guess, or who weren't jumping on this uh, this bandwagon um, from Arkansas and Mississippi, no less, they did start to kind of embrace the idea of Thanksgiving in 1840, or in, in the, the early 1840s, issuing these Thanksgiving proclamations that we'd seen in other states uh, for um, Arkansas and Mississippi, respectively, the idea of celebrating like a Puritan northern holiday uh, became more and more of a sticking point in the 1850s as things really started to heat up uh, with that debate on slavery. Yeah, yeah. Diana Carter Applebaum sums it up perfectly in her work, Thanksgiving, an American holiday in American history. She says, Thanksgiving was above all a New England holiday and New England was abolitionist territory. So you know how human psychology works, fellow ridiculous historians. If you already don't care for someone, then everything you see them do is going to be another reason for you not to like them. Even if it's something as innocuous as, hey, let's all eat dinner together. Uh, people who are front and center on the idea of a national Thanksgiving holiday also tended to be Protestants, Northern Evangelical Protestants, and those folks were themselves very closely linked to the abolitionist movement. And, you know, at this time, nothing occurs in a vacuum. At this time, uh, people are increasingly in favor of abolition in the 1840s, and a lot of Northern ministers are going to the pulpit during Thanksgiving season to talk about how horrific and terrible slavery is. So Southerners, the the rulers of the Southern region at this time, start to, to buck. They push back against the idea of Thanksgiving. And especially in Virginia, I believe, where the local leaders said, our state is the real cradle of this nation, not right. those, not those uh, jerks up in New England. And so this, this occurs, this resistance to Thanksgiving also occurs in other ideas, like because to them, it very much is a culture war. Southerners, uh, even the very well-to-do Southerners are saying, hey, let's not send our kids to those Ivy League schools up north. Let's not have Yankees teach our kids. And you know what? If a magazine, if a magazine is published in these northern states, then I will be damned, good sir, if I will ever soil my eyes by looking yes. upon its page. Yeah, indeed. It was pretty, pretty crazy. 
it was like, you know, again, this whole anti-Thanksgiving sentiment was really just wrapped up in this anti-Northern sentiment. The South was just looking for any excuse to escalate. So Thanksgiving just kind of became part of one of those things that you just mentioned that, nah, we, we don't we don't celebrate that Yankee travesty of a holiday. No, thank you. In 1853, Governor Joseph Johnson um, he declined to declare a day for Thanksgiving for his state, saying uh, that he sided with Thomas Jefferson. That interesting point we talked about earlier, the idea of separating church from state. Um, Johnson's successor was this uh, slave-owning real pill named Henry A. Wise, who was even more in the separation of church and state camp. In 1856, um, he got that same letter that Sarah Josepha Hill had been sending all of the governors, uh, encouraging them to declare a general day for Thanksgiving. Not only did Wise say absolutely not, but he, he wrote her back a strongly worded letter where he, um, you know, laid out his, his position on the issue uh, uh, thusly. This theatrical national claptrap of thanksgiving has aided other causes in setting thousands of pulpits to preach in Christian politics instead of humbly letting the carnal kingdom alone and preaching singly Christ crucified. Woo! Yeah, uh, and just a point of clarity there, Governor uh, Joseph Johnson and Henry A. Wise, they're governors of Virginia. Right, we, they were successors. Yeah. They one one yeah. came after the other, yes. and they both were were similarly uh, focused on the separation of church and state. But again, I'm still not in any of our research not seeing uh, any religious ties at all to Thanksgiving. It, stri- it strikes me as even in its onset to be a very secular holiday. Um, I mean, obviously the church service, you know, promoting giving thanks and all that. I mean. That that's a separate thing, you know. It's up to you as to whether you make it religious or not in your house. But all of the, you know, even like the church, the the the, the songs around Thanksgiving, like we gather together. Well, it does say to ask the Lord's blessing. I guess there's right. And it's and a Puritan, again, you know, the Puritan yeah, angle, maybe. Is what yeah, it is. and again, the the Protestants who are pushing this are like champions of abolition. So it's seen as supporting that holiday from the Southern perspective if they're pro-slavery is seen as supporting abolition, which they were very much not. I mean, let's call it what it is. Governor Johnson and Governor Wise were both super into enslaving people. They saw nothing wrong with it, and they didn't want to erode what they saw as the status quo. The Richmond Whig later articulates the case against Thanksgiving more so when they say it's not religious enough. So maybe they are agreeing a little more with you. They say it's it's too worldly. And, right. and the Richmond Wig, by the way, is, is a publication. They say what people should be doing on Thanksgiving is praying. And in the District of Columbia, they said all the federal offices are closed, but, quote, an astonishing quantity of execrable liquor will be guzzled, and the holiday will be little more than an occasion for indulgence in dissipation at the cost of character. What was that word, Ben? Execrable? Execrable. What does that mean? Like, 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 like intoxicating? No, it means like disgusting, like excrement. Oh, he's basically saying that it's, uh, that it's the devil's, the devil's juice. Yes. Understood. 
And again, I just uh, want to point out that we are still kind of these simmering tensions and all of this really charged rhetoric is all just kind of the run up to the Civil War, which is coming closer day by day. On the actual eve of the start of the Civil War, the uh, acceptance of Thanksgiving in the South was still very, very spotty. There was really no rhyme or reason to it. It was up to individuals and individual uh, governors, you know, as to declaring a, a, a special day that would be, you know, a government holiday. Those that did decide to observe the holiday treated it like a religious day, right. uh, like something like, like going to a mass, you know, or, or a day of relaxation uh, where you would have, you know, big a big spread with the family, uh, like a homecoming kind of situation. Yeah. But it was there. There was wild inconsistencies with the way it was uh, was was practiced. Right, and it's very much this is uh, not for nothing, folks. Was I saying this has comparisons to the so-called war on Christmas in the modern day? Because commentators in the South said, "Look, we already have a holiday of feasting and celebration toward the end of the year. It's called Christmas in New England." There was uh, still this legacy, this Puritan belief that Christmas was a secular abomination. And hey, look around at the various traditions of Christmas and where they come from. They're not entirely off base in in that it's not, you know, it's not entirely Christian in its roots. But Christmas up there wasn't considered a real celebratory occasion until about the 1870s. From the Southern perspective, uh, many people said this idea of having Thanksgiving and then right after having Christmas is redundant. We're losing a day's income for workers, for businesses, and some Southern newspapers like the Richmond Daily Dispatch even accused Northerners of trying to unseat the traditional religious holiday of Christmas with this Thanksgiving dinner BS, this malarkey. Uh, so, so the war on Christmas is an old, old idea in this country. but. This is not the end of the story because the nation is hurtling headlong into one of the bloodiest conflicts it will ever face up to the present. That, I believe, is where we want to pause for part one of our exploration of Thanksgiving, that old Yankee abolitionist holiday. What do you say, Noel? I, I think we've got a little cliffhanger, right, as we're as we're right before the Civil War. You know I'm here for a cliffhanger, Ben. And uh, yeah, definitely a shorter two-parter, but it did feel nice and modular. You know, we put two of these out a week. Guys, guys give us a break. Give us a two-parter. Y'all are the best. We love all of you so much. All of you ridiculous historians out there, thank you uh, to you, first and foremost. Um, thank you to Max Williams, our super producer extraordinaire, and his bro, Alex Williams, who composed our theme and did a lovely uh, guest appearance on Ridiculous History while I was away on Adventures the other week, where you guys did a two-parter on the New England Vampire Panic, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, and Max was away as well. Thank you guys both for thank you guys both for returning and regaling me with stories of your adventures. Uh, we also want to thank, of course, Jonathan Strickland, aka the Quister. If you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, we have a treat for you. Uh, our our pal slash nemesis is starring in his own episode of 13 Days of Halloween, which should be available now, so do check it out. Let us know what you think. Uh, we also, of course, 
want to thank Gabe Luzier, our research associate. Uh, we want to thank, you know what, just in advance, I want to thank everybody who is kind enough to host their friends and loved ones at their houses for Thanksgiving. I know it's not easy. I know it's a heck of a lot of cooking. I know sometimes people aren't as thankful as they need to be. But we promise you folks, if you uh, just like that speech at the very end of Scrooge, if you yes. if you let a little, you know, let a little love in your life uh, and you make it a point to let the people in your life know that you appreciate them, you will be surprised by how much better you feel as well. Agreed. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.